Good morning, Arcadia. That was underwhelming. I've been gone for two weeks. <laughs> Thank you. Hey, uh, we really appreciate all the people that read scripture for us every Sunday morning, but I uh, just want to mention, is that the last time we get to hear from you for a while? Unless he's going away to school, so um, I don't know. Sort of mixed feelings, isn't it? Yeah, okay. All right. Back to our regular programming now. Let's pray together, and we will dive into uh, Romans 4. God, thank you very much for who you are. Uh, our goal today is to lift and exalt you and your son, Jesus Christ. And we are thankful that you are sovereign and that you are majestic, and that in your mystery, you have provided us salvation through your son, Jesus Christ. You've given us the gospel, and by faith, we can receive that. And so, God, we thank you for that, and we thank you also for your word and its truth. And as we uh, work through this uh, short paragraph today, we just ask that um, you would open our hearts and our minds to what you have to say. I pray that you would move me out of the way and that you would be clearly heard this morning. God, we thank you for your Holy Spirit who's with us now, who's leading and guiding and directing and interpreting, protecting and providing for us right now. So, God, let us be sensitive to that as well. God, we're thankful for your word and its truth. We just want to uh, learn from it. We want to live by it. And ultimately, we know that it points to your son, Jesus. And so we pray that in his name. Amen. Well, uh, I, if you're new here, uh, my name is Frank, and I'm what we would call the primary communicator on Sunday mornings. So 35 or 40 times a year, uh, I'm the one that you're going to see. But I've been gone the last two Sundays. I was gone actually a week, but I was gone two Sundays the way the schedule worked out. And uh, I happen to like that as well because it gives us an opportunity to hear different voices. Uh, the same God speaking through different voices, though. And so it gives you a little variety and it gives you a little bit of a different perspective. Uh, those of you who were here last week got to hear Tyler preach, which is always uh, really good and, and really special. Tyler is the lead pastor over what we call Big R Redemption. So over all of Redemption, if you're new to Redemption, Redemption is one church with six campuses, or not, sorry, not campuses, but six congregations, and we have a lead pastor who, who uh, is over all of that, and that is Tyler Johnson, and he was here last week, and it, and it was good to hear from him uh, because um, I like the fact that you get to have access to Tyler uh, occasionally. My goal is that he would preach here two or three times a year so that you can have some access to him and know who we are also being led by. Ultimately, of course, we're being led by Jesus, but, you know, Tyler's like right below Jesus, so, and then the rest of us, okay? So, um, it's good for you to know who he is and, and have access to him, uh, but it's also good for him to come in and, and be able to speak because he can give you updates, as I, as I know he did last week, about what's going on uh, redemption-wide, so that's also really helpful, and he's a really good preacher, too. And then the week before that, you got to hear from Sean again, our pastoral resident. Uh, Sean has been with us now. This is hard to believe. Uh, he's been with us since April 2012. So he's been with us almost a year and a half now as a resident. He's got maybe a, a little more than a year to go uh, before, uh, at least if the plans work out as we hope, that, that we'll be planting him in the Northwest Valley. Uh, it's been a thrill to be able to uh, be a part of training him and getting him uh, ready for that. And so you heard from him, you, you hear from him regularly now, like every, every month or so. Um, and I know that I get feedback when Sean preaches, and, and I know that some of you are a little bit concerned, and I appreciate that. You, 
you know, the fact that Sean's preaching style and my preaching style are so similar that some of you are having trouble distinguishing between the two of us. Right, bro? So, <clears throat> anyway. <laughs> Read 1 Corinthians 12. Paul says the diversity of the members of the body is something that we should embrace and thank God for. And I'm so glad that when I'm not up here, we have different voices. Same Holy Spirit, same God speaking through them, but different voices. And you get to hear a different perspective. And that's a good thing. That is a really good thing. And it doesn't bother any of us that some of you might say, you know what, I connect a little better with Tyler, or a little bit better with Sean, or a little bit better with Frank. It doesn't bother any of us because ultimately who you're connecting with is God. And that's really important. And, and, and to be a part of a congregation that has so many people who can do that on Sunday morning is, is really special. Not every congregation, um, not every church has that ability to just kind of bring guys in that, that are always going to be so filled with the Spirit and be able to communicate. So that's a good thing. Uh, rolling through the book of Romans. We're in our 90-week series on Romans. And uh, we're kind of doing a little four-week mini-series right now on uh, chapter four of Romans. We're in week three uh, of that. And, and here's a really good question that a lot of people ask. Why did Paul write chapter four anyway? It seems as though he's covering some ground that's already been covered, and, and even there's a, a few things in there that seem a little bit tangential. It's a good question, but here's why. In, in Romans chapter three, verses 21 through 31, we actually have the heart of, of Paul's gospel presentation. Now, a lot of people call the book of Romans, the letter that Paul writes to the church at Rome, the fifth gospel. It is all about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And those 11 verses, 21 through 31, are the heart of his gospel presentation. Everything else in, in the book is really just supporting that and unpacking that. And, and so chapter 4, then, is Paul's Old Testament proof or support for the claims that he's making in verses 21 through 31 of chapter 3. It's the same with many of you. If, you. if you went to college or graduate school or whatever and you wrote a paper, you, you had to cite sources and, and, and be able to, uh, in your argument, be able to cite experts or, or reasons why your argument is true. And that's what Paul is doing here. Paul is very thorough. He wants to close every possible loophole that somebody might think they have that might oppose the gospel. And so he goes through these things for our benefit by the power of the Holy Spirit. He's being led by the Holy Spirit to write this. And he does this simply because he desperately desires everyone to get and to understand the supremacy of grace in our lives. That it's not about our, our, our meritorious behavior or works. It's all about God's uh, unmerited favor and love for us that saves us. And he wants to make sure we understand that. That's grace through faith. Now, Peter did the same thing. If you think about it, Peter kind of did the same thing when he preached, only he just did it in reverse. Uh, like in, in chapter 2 of Acts, when he preached that famous sermon at Pentecost, what he did was he cited the Old Testament scriptures, and then at the end, he presents the gospel. Paul's doing it the other way around. Paul is simply saying, here's the gospel, now here's my Old Testament proof. And so, uh, two weeks ago, he used Abraham. Last week, he used King David. And now this week, he comes back to Abraham 
but very specifically about Abraham, he wants to talk once again about this issue of circumcision. I think that that word circumcision in this four-verse paragraph occurs nine or ten times. So it's not just about Abraham, but it's about what Abraham represents to the Jews, and that is circumcision. And here's what's interesting about this. Even now, Paul knows... We need to understand, there's both Jews and Gentiles in the church at Rome, but Paul knows that there's a need to let the Jews in Rome know that the righteousness of God is not just for Jews only. It's not just for those who have been circumcised. It's not just for those who have the law. And who better than Paul to tell them this because Paul is Jewish himself. This isn't some Gentile guy telling the Jews this. It's somebody who has credibility with them. And so he goes after the Jews, and and it's ironic that his proof is Abraham because Abraham is the very person that the Jews would turn to in saying, we're righteous because of Abraham and his circumcision. And he's coming and he's saying, no, 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 no. It's not because of Abraham's circumcision. He wasn't saved by that, but rather he was saved by faith because he believed. He was justified. He was made righteous because of his faith. And as a result, his big point in this paragraph is that all who believe, all who are justified, Abraham is your father, your spiritual father. Whether you're a Jew or a Greek, whoever you are, that's his big point. And so what Paul does is he takes the boast of the Jews, what the Jews might boast about, that they have Abraham, that they have circumcision, that they have the law, He talks about this in chapter 3, verse 27, and more specifically in chapter 4, verse 2. He takes the boast of the Jews, what they might boast in, and he turns it upside down and he says, you you can't boast in that. There's only one thing you can boast in, and that's in Jesus Christ. Life, death, and resurrection. And you need to have faith in him. Um, One scholar puts it this way, and, and, and this is pretty strong language. You think about this. It is not the Gentile that must come to Abraham's Jewish circumcision for salvation, but rather the Jew that must come to Abraham's Gentile faith. The faith that God gave Abraham long before he was ever circumcised. So Abraham's righteousness is the result of faith in God, faith in Yahweh. So righteousness was credited to him. And that word credited is an accounting word. It means to tally up or to or to be counted or to make correct by number it's kind of like that in our family in in the in the switzer family we like to play cards it's one of the things we like to do and specifically there's two games we like to play we like to play dutch blitz and we like to play bubble any dutch blitz players anybody in here there's one Way in the back, well, okay, a couple of you. And you understand that you're, you're risking your knuckles and your hands when you play Dutch Blitz, right? Well, then there's Bubble. Those are the games we like to play, and they're all point games. They're all point games. Speed and smarts and all that stuff. Well, at the end of the game, what you do is the scorekeeper counts up all the points. And, and if you are credited with, or another word is if you are reckoned with the most points, then you win. Well, this righteousness is credited for Abraham's faith wins every time. It doesn't matter what happens. And, and, and here's the best part. Because what's credited to Abraham is different than anything that gets credited to us in a card game or, or at work when we tally up our hours or, or, or we look at our time card or we look at our paycheck or, or maybe you're at school and you're getting your grades. It's different than when you tally anything uh, other than your righteousness up. It's different because we had to work for those things. 
We had, we had to work to win a card game. We had to work to make money. We had to work to get good grades. But Sean told us last week this, in the story of Abraham, when God made his covenant with Abraham, Abraham slept. He was asleep. He was credited with righteousness. He did nothing. He had faith in God. And that faith came from God in the first place. That's what's so cool about it. And if you're here today and you're in Christ, you you believe in Jesus, you trust Jesus, you have faith in Jesus, the Greek word is the same word for all of those. Faith, trust, believe, pisteo. If you're here and you're in Christ, you are credited with that very same righteousness. You are righteous before God. You are redeemed. You are saved from the consequence of your sin. And God does it all for us. And again, I want to make this clear. This is a really important point that we keep pounding on. You know, was it the quality of Abraham's faith that, that gave him the righteousness? No. God didn't look at Abraham and say, wow, I've never seen faith like that. That's like grade AAA faith, you know? He didn't say that. It also wasn't the quantity of Abraham's faith. He didn't say, I've never seen anybody with so much faith. I'm going to give him righteousness. That's not what happened. You know, you know, Abraham wasn't walking around straining to have faith. He didn't pull a hamstring because he was trying to have faith. It, none of that. It was what he put his faith in. That's the key to this faith deal. It's what you put your faith in. We trust things all the time that let us down. And it wasn't our faith that was deficient. What was deficient is what we trusted, what we put our faith in. Every winter, you're going to read about somebody, and there's more than just the ones you read about, somebody who decides to walk across a lake, a pond, or a river that's been frozen over, and they get to a point where the ice is too thin. They had faith to be able to walk across it, but they fall through and they die, and they, get dr- and they, and they are drowned. It wasn't their faith that was deficient, it was the ice that was deficient. No matter what we put our faith in, if it's other than Jesus Christ, if it's other than God through Christ, It's going to eventually let us down because it's deficient. The gospel and Jesus Christ are never deficient. And the reason is because God is able. By the way, Jesus beat death. Why put your faith in anything else? That's a pretty good resume. By the way, it did take faith for Abraham to believe the promises that God gave him. Because God gave to him originally when he was in his 80s and later on when he was 100 and said, I'm going to build my nation through you. And they didn't have any children. That takes faith. I I mean, how many, you know, 90-year-olds you see having babies these days? Not too many. So, I want to read the paragraph again. Get it into us. Then we'll talk a little bit about it talk about and discuss some of the words in there and the ideas, and then I have a closing implication that I'm going to hit really hard. So Paul says in verse 9, is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? This connects us to verses 7 and 8 right before where Paul talks about uh, how King David uh, said that those are blessed who have had their sins and their uh, lawless deeds covered Or those deeds are not counted against them. They are forgiven. Those people are blessed. If you are in Christ, you are blessed because your sins are not counted against you. 
So he says, is this blessing then only for the circumcised? Is that how you get this blessing? Or is it also for people who are uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still circumcised. We'll look at those words, sign and seal. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believed without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised but who also walk in the footsteps of faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. In other words, that last verse there, Paul is saying, look, there are, uncircum- there are circumcised people who don't have faith who are not justified. Circumcision is not what justifies you. You've got to walk in the footsteps of faith. You've got to have faith. And so he starts by saying, this blessing, who is it reserved for? Is it reserved for certain types of people, certain ethnicities, certain religiosities? No, that's Paul's argument. And he's especially making this to the Jews because the Jews for hundreds and hundreds of years were really hung up on this. And so he has to keep going back to them. And you can see the argument that he's making. He's saying, listen, when was it counted to him as righteousness? Genesis 15.6. It wasn't at least for another 14 years that Abraham was circumcised. Some chronologies say it was at least 29 years. Either way, 14 years or 29 years, that's a long time. He was credited with his righteousness way before he ever got circumcised. It's not that circumcision isn't important. It's a sign and a seal, which we'll discuss. We need to talk about that. But that's Paul's argument. It's faith that justifies We need to talk about that footsteps deal too, but first I want to answer this question. Some people say, well, well, if Jesus is the only way and he saves everybody, how did Jesus save Abraham? How does that work? And that's a good question. We need to understand that Abraham's faith was not just in God, but also in the promises that God made to him. And, and, And Abraham clearly demonstrates that he has faith in the promises of God in Genesis 22. Now, You read the story of Abraham. I get it. His faith was not perfect. There was a lot of doubt. He made a lot of mistakes. He looks a lot like you and me, right? But that Genesis 22 thing, that's different. He didn't hesitate. He just just went for it. Here he's got Isaac, the son of the promise. And he just goes. It's because he believed God. That's the one where I look at and go, I don't know if I could do what Abraham's doing there, but he didn't hesitate. He just went. He had faith that God would provide somehow. Uh, Scholars say, and and of course the writer of Hebrews says, that that Abraham actually believed that he was going to have to kill Isaac, but that God would resurrect him. So Abraham believed in resurrection. Or God would provide or protect in another way, which is ultimately how it happened. If you read Genesis 22, you know that God provided an alternative sacrifice to Isaac right at the last minute, the ram that was caught in the thicket. Either way, he believed that God would protect and provide, that he he would be able to do it. And he believed that promise, that that, uh, Isaac was going to be the son that produced this vast nation that God had promised he would make out of Abraham. But there's another promise as well that Abraham trusts. He trusts that through Isaac, he's also going to provide the line 
that gives that one seed the seed of the Messiah, the seed of the Savior, the seed of Jesus. He also trusted that promise as well, the spermata. There's two levels on which this plays out. There's going to be this great and vast nation, which there is, lots of people, but there's going to be this one child as well, who is the Messiah. And Abraham believed in that too, and so righteousness was credited to him. Now, here's what's interesting. Abraham believed that. You and I live in the 2,000-year wake of the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. And by the way, let me just say for the record, the historical debate about whether any of this happened, about Jesus being a historical figure, and, and about whether or not he had a life and a death and a resurrection, people don't even argue about that anymore. The question is, what are you going to do with it? Scholars don't argue. They admit, yeah, he lived, he died, he was, re he was raised. The question is, what are you going to do with it? We live in the wake of that evidence. Abraham didn't have that. We have the evidence right in front of us. So the big question is, do you believe? Are you a son of God's and therefore, by faith, a spiritual son of Abraham's? Are you a daughter of God's and therefore, by faith, a daughter of Abraham's? It's the most important question you will ever answer in your life. What are you going to do with the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus? So let's unpack a few of these other things a little bit more. What was the purpose of circumcision? And according to Paul, in this paragraph, it was, uh, it was a sign and a seal. Those are important words. Uh, let's talk about sign first. Sign means an indication or an identifying mark. So when you go to sign a document... When you sign that document, it is an indication that you are submitting yourself to, that you are in assent to this document, this contract that is in theory bigger than you once you sign it. You agree to those terms. And it's your identifying mark. That's why you sign your name. So it's an indication and it's an identifying mark. Your signature is not the contract. It's not the document. But it points to your agreement with the contract and with it. It points to something bigger than you. That's a sign. It's a, a sign is something that points to something else, something bigger, something of true value. It's not that the sign doesn't have value. It does. But its value is only in pointing to something else. And we know that signs have value. How often have you been looking for a place and you're aggravated because there's no sign for it? So you understand the value of the sign, but ultimately the greatest value is the place that the sign is pointing you toward. I used to do a lot of preaching and, and, and speaking in Kingman, Arizona. And I know that's really impressive to a lot of you. That's, yeah, Kingman. And I still get to go up there occasionally. I still get invited. You know, that's kind of my life, you know, going to Kingman and keeping the 70s alive. That's a significant life, you know. Well, coming back from Kingman, any of you who have ever done this, or from Vegas, any of you who have ever done this, okay, same direction, you got that little stretch on, on Interstate 40 where you're heading east, and there's a sign there that says, Phoenix, 178 miles. Well, every time I, I, I see that sign, I don't stop the car and get out and celebrate at the sign. The sign is not, that would be stupid for me to stop and celebrate there. The sign is not Phoenix, but the sign is important because it points me to Phoenix, which is my ultimate goal. That's where I want to get. That's what the sign does. It's less than Phoenix, but it still has value. But it's not just that a sign points at something. A sign, especially in this case, circumcision 
or baptism or Lord's Supper, it also indicates ownership. Ownership. Uh, one of my favorite little breakfast haunts, Joe's Diner at 16th Street in Campbell. And I know he's moving or he already has. I've been out of town. I was in Iowa. Um, they're moving to Melrose and 7th Avenue. But uh, I love Joe's Diner. He's got that big sign that says Joe's Diner, okay? So that's a sign that indicates that Joe's, the restaurant is right here. Now, I've never eaten breakfast at the sign. I'm always in the restaurant when I eat breakfast. That's the value of the sign. Oh, here I am, okay? But also, it's Joe's Diner. It indicates owner, who owns the diner? Joe. Thank you. Joe Sorelli, okay? Joe owns the diner. The Lord's Supper, though it's a type of sign, also points to ownership. This is my body, which is given for you. This is the cup of the new covenant poured out for you so that you would have forgiveness of sins. We belong to Jesus. Jesus owns us by his sacrifice, by his life, by his death. We don't belong to ourselves anymore. And I know that's really frightening for some people. It was frightening to me for 27 years to think that I might not belong to myself. That's why I resisted God. But there's nobody better to belong to than Jesus Christ. And He owns us. It's a sign of ownership as well. Then there's the seal. Literally, that word seal could mean signet ring, which means like the king's signet ring. The king would have a, a ring that he would that he would imprint on documents to guarantee that his authority stood behind the document. Or he would imprint it on the seal on a tomb. And if anybody breaks that seal, they are subject to death. The, the seal indicates official binding authority. And if you can get the signet ring from the king somehow, you can have his power of attorney and you can essentially have his authority, which Joseph had in those latter chapters of Genesis. He, he was given the signet ring by the king of Egypt and so he was able to go around and, and speak with the authority of the king and do things with the authority of the king. So this, this, this seal demonstrates authority. Some of you have passports and there's a seal of the United States in there. That means that that passport has the authority of the United States government behind it and that's what gets you in and out of these other countries. A notary public has a seal that indicates authority as well. Well, these, other, these signs, circumcision, baptism, Lord's Supper, those, those indicate the authority of God and that's why we treasure them so much. That's why they are important. There's a really, part of my, again, part of my job is to keep the 70s alive. There's a really famous Stevie Wonder song from 1970. Just happened to make it in there, fit. It's a, and it's still a kind of a popular song. It's, uh, you hear it every now and then. It goes like this, signed, sealed, delivered, I'm yours. You heard that song, right? Okay. Now, the context for this song, there are people right now in their 50s and 60s who are smiling. The rest of you are looking at your smartphones and Googling, so that's interesting to me, all right? Um, <laughs> uh, the context of the song is that Stevie is, is making, writing a song to his romantic lover or, or his lover that he lost and, and wants back and the reason he lost her is because he walked away from her 
She didn't walk away from him. He walked away from her. And now he's coming back and he's guaranteeing to her that he, he is really 100% loyal and committed at this time. It's funny. If you've ever read the song before, I do this a lot with songs. It's interesting to me. The con- if you strip it of its romantic lover context, it's really good biblical theology. It really is. You find... Uh, writers of the Bible saying many of the same types of things in Scripture. Let me just give you a couple of verses. He writes this, Like a fool I went and stayed too long. Now I'm wondering if your love's still strong. Ooh, baby, here I am. Signed, sealed, delivered, I'm yours. But But here he got, he walked away. How many of us have walked away from God? And sometimes we walk away and we don't know if we should come back because we don't know if it's... Love is still going to be strong for us. Then that time I went and said goodbye, now I'm back and I'm not ashamed to cry. Ooh, baby, here I am. Signed, sealed, delivered, I'm yours. That's the end of the singing thing. (laughs) Writers of Scripture say the same things, but there's a difference. Unlike romantic lovers, like Stevie Wonder had to hear, we never have to wonder about Jesus. His love is always strong. We're the ones that wander away. He never wanders away. We never have to beg Jesus. He's begging her in this song. You realize that, don't you? He's begging. We never have to beg Jesus. We never have to manipulate Jesus, though many of us have tried that. We don't even have to write love songs to Jesus, although there's nothing wrong with that, and we do, and we sing them, but we don't even have to do that. His love is guaranteed. And it's because it was His faith that was given to us in the first place to have the faith in Him. It's Jesus singing, Here I am, signed, sealed, delivered, you're mine. This is ownership of the best kind. We belong to Jesus Christ, Savior, Lord, God. And understand, Paul's not disrespecting circumcision or for that matter, any of these other signs, baptism or Lord's Supper. He's just making sure that we understand them in their proper context and in their proper value. He says, look, these things are not what imputes God's righteousness to us. What imputes God's righteousness to us is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus and our faith in that, our belief in that, our trust in that. And then verse 12 is just huge. It's not that those to whom the righteousness of God is credited were circumcised, but that they walked in the footsteps of faith. That's the true measure. Anybody can get circumcised, but not everybody has faith. And that is the true measure, and that's what Paul is saying here. Uh, Walked in the footsteps. That, That little Greek phrase in there literally means to find somebody's footprints and try to walk in them in a manner that you cannot distinguish between the two. You, you ever gone to the beach and you try to do that in the sand? That's, what it's, that's literally what it's talking about. Now, think about that idea and think about when Jesus says this, deny yourself and pick up your cross daily. Walking in the footsteps of faith. Following Christ. So this is clearly a reminder that the Christian faith is not just about salvation, about getting forgiven so that we can go to heaven, but it's about the journey that we go on after salvation. It's about sanctification, that that big theological word that literally means that the more and more we get to know Jesus and the more we follow Him, the more we will look like Him and the more we will walk in His footsteps. 
So it's about sanctification. It's also about the mission that we go on. It's about our purpose in life being changed. It's about engaging in discipleship. It's about finding somebody who will disciple you, lead you, teach you, mentor you, but also because you are gifted and God is dwelling in you through His Holy Spirit and His resurrected Son, you also find somebody else to disciple as well. But I'm brand new at this, Frank. I know. You still know more than some people. And you can still lead others. We should be discipled and discipling at the same time. And, and, and we are pilgrims. We're pilgrims. Not like the Mayflower deal. Pilgrim is one who is on a journey that has a destination, but the destination is not necessarily always the purpose. The journey is as much the purpose as it is the jet destination. The process of going on the journey is as important as the destination. And it's funny because often, uh, often people will reject the path of Jesus because they know that the, that the journey is not going to be all cupcakes and muffins. That the path of Jesus does not guarantee ease and comfort. That it's going to be challenging and it's going to be filled with tribulation and trial and challenges and suffering. Uh, I mean, look at Abraham's life. He did not have the easiest life in the world, but he was faithful. Look at Paul's life. Greatest Christian who ever lived, Paul. How was his life? Filled with lots and lots of circumstantial and physical misery. The journey is not all cupcakes and muffins. Look at your life. Look at my life. So people look at that and they choose never to say, I don't want to do that. Coming to Jesus is going to be costly. I'm going to have to think about my life differently. I'm going to have to think about the things that I value differently. I'm going to have to reconsider how I live my life, and I don't want to do that. That'll be uncomfortable. It'll be inconvenient. It'll be hard. It'll be depressing. But it'll give you freedom because you're owned by Jesus now. And His purpose and His plan for your life is exactly what you've been looking for your whole life. To be owned by God and not yourself. But the irony of all of this is that the destination of the Christian, the destination of the pilgrim who is in Christ, is the sweetest destination of all. And if you're not sure about that ultimate destination... Read Revelation 21 and 22, those two chapters. It describes the new Jerusalem where we will reside at some point forever and ever and ever. And it's pretty cool. Like, I'd like to be there now. It's a great place. We leave our former home, the home of sin, the the home of self, the home of suffering, the home of rebellion, the home of pride, and we go to the perfect home, the new Jerusalem. So here's what we need to understand about pilgrims. Salvation is not the starting line, but the finish line. I, I, occasionally I run marathons, and, and because I'm slow, I, I have to, they make me start in the back, you know, corral 8 or 10 or whatever it is. They have those corrals. And so the gun will go off, and it might be a minute or a minute and a half before I ever get to the starting line. So I'm running the race before I even get to the starting line. That's the penalty for being slow, Okay. 
Well, it'd be kind of stupid for me to cross the starting line and go, okay, that's it, I'm done. But that's exactly what a lot of people do with faith in Christ. They, they, they feel like, okay, I've been saved now. I've got that checked off my bucket list. I've got the insurance policy in my hip pocket. I don't have to do anything else. And so they cross the starting line and they think they're finished. That's actually tragic. Driscoll says it this way, and I think he's right. He says, people love to be deployed, but they hate to be committed. People love to, to be sent, to be recognized, to be commissioned, to be, to be consecrated. They love for, for somebody to make a fuss over them and to be noticed, but, but the long haul of being committed to something That's a tougher deal. And it's only by the power of Christ that we can do that. It's only by the power of the Holy Spirit living in us that we can do that. That's what we must recognize. It's not our power. It's His that He gives us. And we need to lean into that. Short-haul people are a dime a dozen. Long-haul people are one in a hundred. But that's what Jesus gives us. So Paul says... If you're in Christ, you are an adopted son or daughter of God, but we are also the offspring of Abraham. He is also our father. He's the father of all who have faith. He's the father of all who believe. He's the father of all who trust. We embrace Jesus as Savior, but we also need to know about Abraham as our father in the faith. So here's the closing implication of that. One of the things that Paul was doing in this paragraph, and it's something that's very important to Paul, he does it in many other places, is he is identifying spiritual lineage or spiritual kinship. When Paul wrote to Timothy and Titus, for instance, he would open his letters to them saying, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, to Timothy, my beloved son, to Titus, my true child in our common faith. There is a kinship that Paul so appreciates and exemplifies about faith that I think often gets lost on us, which I think is remarkable considering we live in a, in a time where people say that they value relationship and community. Well, here's relationship and community at its best. And I think we need to be more careful about intentionally preserving this spiritual lineage that we have. We talk a lot about God doing all the work of our faith, and that's true, and that's right, and, and He gets all the glory, and He gets all the credit, and that's good. But what we often fail to mention is how God does that work, and it's usually through other people. And so, if you're a Christian right now, if you're in Christ, just, just right now, let your mind wander to those people that God placed in your life and used and who re- were responsible... Uh, I'm sorry, responsive to the gospel in their lives who presented you with the gospel. Who came to you and told you about Jesus. Who, who got into a relationship with you because they loved you enough to be able to tell you about Jesus. Think about those people in your life. They're your spiritual line. They're your spiritual kin. They're your spiritual fathers and mothers and grandfathers and grandmothers. And they all eventually connect back to Abraham. But you and I have flesh-on-flesh relationships with these people. Think about those people. Aren't you glad that those people were obedient to God's call in their life to share the gospel with you, to disciple you, to challenge you, to comfort you, and to be in relationship with you, even when it wasn't really that great to be in relationship with you? I mean, let's face it. 
Don't you appreciate them? But this, by the way, please, I'm not trying to manipulate you. I'm not doing that. That's not, I'm just trying to remind you of something that I think is very important that Paul values as well. I know we're busy. I know we have stuff to do. I know life is hard. And I know it's a challenge to slow down and do something like this. And, and the truth is, some of us are going, well, what's the point? I mean, they're Christians. I'm a Christian. I'm going to see them in the New Jerusalem then. We'll have plenty of time to hang out with them then. Thank them then. I get that. But how awesome would it be to acknowledge them now? To thank them now? To pray for them now? How encouraging would it be to some of them to hear that from you? I, I, I love handwritten cards. Again, keeping the 70s live. I'm old school. I love to do handwritten things. But I will tell you that even a simple text, a Facebook posting, a tweet, an email, that's pretty old school now too, I know. Just, just an acknowledgement would be awesome. You know, and again, we live in an era where people say we value relationships and community. This is a, pl- this is a way we could demonstrate that. I, I got like three minutes. I want to just mention a couple of mine. And none of them are here, so I'm not sucking up and they don't listen to the podcast. But it's true one of them was in the first service, so that would be Jackie, my wife. Uh, Jackie and I were friends for two years before we started dating. We worked together. I was a non-believer. She was a Christian since she was six years old. And I spent two years in that friendship mocking her and ridiculing her for her faith in Jesus Christ. Making fun of the church, telling her how stupid she was. And she just hung in there with me. And she didn't have to. And I was a jerk. And she'd smile and hang in there with me. And, and, and there was no chance, really, that we were ever going to date at that time. So it's not like she was hanging in there because she thought that, you know, there was any chance of that. She just did it because of Christ in her, because of the gospel call on her life. Now, thankfully, about two years into this, she dumped the loser she was with, and then I became her husband, so that was kind of (laughs) cool. God really did work that out, though. And she continues to be that important spiritually in my life. She's somebody that I know I can trust to go to with stuff that I can't take anywhere else. There's... There's a guy that is, is one of the <clears throat> founding pastors of Redemption. He's the founder, uh, founding pastor of the Gilbert campus, Tom Schrader. Many of you know him. It's him. 25 years ago, I, was, I, I, I got to hear him speak for the first time. I was a young, floundering, uh, just lost new Christian. And I heard him speak, and, and, and he was able to communicate scripture and the gospel in a way that that actually made sense to me the spirit was using him in a remarkable way not only in my life but in hundreds and hundreds of other people as well went to his bible studies and the funny thing is is as popular as tom was and is and 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 the demands that people would make on his life paul didn't uh, paul might as well be paul tom didn't know me from a door and yet he always had time for me. 
He always made me feel like I was the only person he was ever talking to, like I was the most important person, always. He always treated me like that. And then about 10 years later, he gave me a chance one time. He, he, he couldn't do his, Bible, his weekly Bible study, and, and he, it was a short notice, kind of desperate. And he called me up and asked me to fill in, but I, I know that one of the reasons he asked me to fill in was to encourage me. Not because he thinks so much of me, but because he thinks a lot of the Christ that's in me. But that was an encouragement to me. And we continue to be friends now, and I continue to look at him even today and and say, that's one of my spiritual fathers. There's another Tom in my life, Tom Parker. He's the uh, director and has been for the last 27 years. He's the director of the of the uh, Phoenix campus of Fuller Theological Seminary. I I took half my classes there, half at the main campus in Pasadena. Uh, But Tom has had a profound influence on my life. Just filled with the gospel, filled with the Holy Spirit. The interesting thing about Tom, and there's a huge backstory to this, but I'll give you the short version. The interesting thing about Tom is that he had an influence on my life for the good of the gospel a year before I ever met him through his nonverbal communication, before we ever spoke words to each other for a year, he was showing me Christ just simply through his nonverbal communication. I was watching him from afar, scrutinizing him. And we remain friends today. We still work together today. He's part of my spiritual lineage too. Just one more, and I'm done. I want to mention Richard and Diane Birch. They... Years ago, when, when Jackie and I were at North Phoenix Baptist Church, we got to know Richard and Diane, and, and they were about our age, but they were further along in family development than we were. They started earlier than us, and they had three children, and at the time, they were like ages 5 to 11. And we loved Richard and Diane, but we loved their children as well, and we loved how they were raising them. And, and so Jackie and I were planning to have a family, and so we started to race to spend time with Richard and Diane because we wanted to know what it was about them that, w- that enabled them to raise their children the way they were because that's what we wanted to do. And here's what we discovered. This was our first exposure to something called gospel-centered parenting. They raised their children in, in the faith and in the spirit of the gospel. And so we just, we just, for about 10 years, we just glommed onto them and spent all kinds of time with them. Richard and Diane are spiritual, are spiritual mothers and fathers to us and to many other couples as well. In a sense, these people that I've mentioned, and there's others too, but in a sense, I'm their seed. And, and they are the seed of others. And that seed just keeps going back and back and back to Abraham. And Paul makes that connection for us in this passage. Spiritual kinship. This is really important. We live in an age where one of the most popular things on the internet now are these websites where we can go and discover our family tree. Well, we need to do that spiritually as well. And we need to hold that closely. Paul does. He says this is important. Let me pray. God, we just thank you for how you work in other people's lives to bring us the gospel. And we thank you that you're working in our lives as well to bring others the gospel. And so God, we thank you that Paul reminds us of that. We just pray that we would honor you by honoring those people and your work through them. We ask it in Jesus' name.
Amen.